Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab Property and Business Series. My name is Goose. And I'm Charlie. And we're back to you again with another fantastic episode, helping these two worlds of property and business smash together in a big bang to unleash a cosmic force of profitability, happiness, freedom, choice, abundance, all of that good stuff. But we don't just talk about all the good stuff today, do we, Charlie? We actually talk about some of the bad stuff. Absolutely. Keeping it as a balanced conversation as we try. Yeah, exactly. So we, we touched on a lot of really interesting stuff here. Firstly, we talked about, we touched very on a very high level on how to apply the right property business model in your, in your property portfolio journey and what happens if you don't. Touched on team. Hugely. I think team was a big part of this episode and really understanding like you need to think of your team like you would in business in property and taking the same level of seriousness with it. Yeah, absolutely. We also talked about a lot about risk management because I think one of the big things for, I would say, pretty much any investor, and I think if, even if you're not a business owner, I think you should definitely listen to this uh, episode, is understanding, is understanding risk, diversification risk, um, loan-to-value ratio risk, uh, market risk, expo- overexposure, underexposure, strategic alignment, all of this kind of stuff. Because if you don't understand what is around you or how to sort of see around some of those corners, you can very easily find yourself making a, a significant financial error. And we really went deep into that in this episode, which is why this episode is called How Business Owners Can F It Up. And I think this is going to be a really uh, a big eye-opener, particularly to a lot of business owners who maybe just don't really understand how property works. Right, Charlie? Absolutely. And I think what I like the most about this episode is setting some benchmarks, right? Mm. Helping someone understand what is risky or not risky. And then the one that I think is probably most important within this is things that perceivably seem safe where you don't realize you're taking on inherent risk. Hint, hint, buying the house next to you. Yeah. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Or buying one house or buying just one expensive house. Or, you know, all- don't, don't spoil it. It's all sorry. in there. Sorry, 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 guys. Sorry, sorry. We've, got to, we've got to leave this hanging on a, uh, a, an open loop so you guys get in there and check it out. This is definitely full of a lot of gold. And I think that for anyone, like, like it doesn't matter whether my brother is a, a farmer, so he runs a farming and agribusiness. It doesn't matter whether you're running an agribusiness or whether you're running a coaching consulting firm or whether you run a, a, a manufacturing plant or a distribution company, or even in fact, whether you don't do any of that kind of stuff, but you just want to understand risk and you want to understand how diversification can be a a key part or must actually be a key part in your property portfolio, I would suggest that this is going to be uh, a, a w- like weaponized gold in here. I think that this is very high value content and I'm excited to get your feedback. So if you have feedback, please give it to us. We, we, Charlie and I really value this. We want this to be a very impactful series and, and we're very happy with how it's going so far. So let us know. And as I mentioned at the end of the episode, if you want to find out more about any of this kind of stuff, if you want to access free resources, guides, you want to access, you want to access me, you can get hold of me, you can get hold of us, the team, everything like that, just by heading to the investorlab.com.au. And of course, the most important thing for us though is to get this out to more people who need it. So if you could help by giving us a if you if you're watching this, like it and share it. If you're listening to this, jump on the app and give it a review. And you know what? If you know one person, just one person who you think that this would benefit in a meaningful way, then share it with them. Tag him, tag him in a comment, send it to them, email it to them, or you know what? God, let me know and I'll send it to them and I'll do it for you. And that can actually be my gift to you for participating in this series. So, Charlie, have you got anything to add? I think people will really enjoy this one. I did. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, without further ado, let's get stuck into it. We look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab, the property and business mini series. Charlie, how are you today? I'm excellent, Goose. I um, was a bit nervous on the first episode of this series coming out. I mean, this is an area where I think, you know, you say the word money, people start acting funny. They do. Um, and when I started putting it, well, when this episode came out, I was like, oh, maybe we'll get some bad feedback. Maybe 
you know, like you, you put a lot of yourself out there on the internet and it's like mm. you're very curious how people will respond. But I, I was really delighted because two friends, like people I actually like, uh, reached out and said how much they enjoyed it and said that it really like opened their eyes to understanding something they hadn't considered before. And I was like, that's why we do this. Like that's the whole point. Totally. And the main one of the main functions of your business is is producing podcasts, right? So that was obviously a lot of really good validation around, <laughs> around podcasts and the power of podcasts, right? It really was. It absolutely was. And like, you know, drinking your own Kool-Aid, you know, we eat our own dog food, which is a really good thing or way we think about it from yeah. here. But nonetheless, I was happy to see that, you know, people were getting value from what we're making here. Totally. And it, you know, it always really, it, it is really interesting. Like when, uh, obviously a lot of people in, uh, a lot of people who don't know, I, it's, I thought it was interesting that you said some that you actually like, because there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people who, who know me, uh, uh, from a lot of the content that, that we produce and have produced over a long period of time. And it can be really challenging and scary because when you're producing something new, when you're like putting yourself out there, it's like stripping naked and walking down the street. You're like, this is me and I'm doing this thing. I wonder what the feedback is. Do you like what you see, guys? Mm-hmm. And it's, it can be really, it can be terrifying. Luckily, I've been walking naked down streets for a long period of time. So I'm you know relatively okay with it. But the feedback's been awesome. The feedback's been great. And what I've, what I've liked most about from the feedback that I've received as well from different people is that it, um, it's actually really helping people and helping to solve problems that, um, that ha- have actually been keeping people stuck. And uh, so I'm, I'm super pumped that that's actually happening already and, and I'm super pumped to keep this conversation going and to keep solving the problems in the lives of the entrepreneurial among us. Definitely, I'm in. Awesome, fantastic. So today's episode is going to be tackling a slightly different angle. We're going to be talking about how business owners can absolutely F it up. And I think this is a really interesting one because what we can, we're can we going to talk about in this episode is going to cover over a variety of different things from strategy, team, planning, goals, risk management, proximity bias, a whole bunch of stuff, which is also interestingly relevant to uh, non-business owners. So I do know that we're going to cover a lot of ground here, which is going to be relevant to a lot of people. But I think there's some really interesting and unique points and angles that business owners, uh, that I've personally seen as someone who has helped dozens and dozens and dozens of people to traverse this journey of property and a significant portion of them being business owners, I've kind of seen a lot of these questions percolate to the front in a very different way than, uh, than sort of, I guess, your, your normal everyday investor. So I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. So where are we going to start, Charlie? Ooh, well, we, we've got a bit of a list here that we worked on, but I think all of these hold a lot of weight, but I reckon we start this one from the top. Okay. I, want, I want to start at a strategy. Or the way I think about it is almost like business model. Yeah, totally. So, and I think this is really uh, a really interesting one as well because I don't know about you, but there's that I get bombarded with um, with ads and uh, you know all of these different people with different ideas. You know, you should invest in commercial. You should do flips. You should do small developments. You should do negative gearing. And I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again, every single one of those strategies works for someone. But the interesting thing that I see happens with a lot of uh, business owners, or I'll even, I'll even extend that to say, um, you know, busy professionals as well, because they kind of like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of crossover there, is that one of the biggest mistakes that they make is, is they pick the wrong business model. They pick the wrong strategy to pursue. And I'll talk. I'll, I'll talk about a couple of a uh, couple of examples. So I was recently uh, I was recently having a conversation with a very high level uh, advertising executive. You know, so he'd helped grow a company. And so he didn't know it wasn't the founder, but he was a very high level advertising executive, and um, he quite quite he quite openly told me that he he was absolutely sick of what he was doing. He hated it, and he just wanted to stop. I was like, okay, great, and they were making really good money. And they had a really good like base to start from. And I said, great. So what do you want to achieve? He said, right, from where I am in three years time, I don't want to have to work. I don't want to have to do this job anymore. I don't own the company. I've helped grow it. I'm just not, I don't attach. I'm not attached to it anymore. I just want, I've got two young kids now. I want to spend more time with my family. That's it. I was like, okay, cool. So then we started talking about strategy. And he ended up talk, telling me that he'd done a bit of research and he was really torn between these 
three different, three very different ideas, three very different ideas. One of them was he'd been to a property seminar and they spoke to him about uh, doing developments. And he was like, okay, developments. Okay. Understand that. Gets, get, buy, buy, buy a lot of land in a, in a large estate, man, manufacture equity by building a house on it. Okay, cool. And then get tax deductions. Got it. And then another, another completely different one was like super blue chip, like middle of Sydney, um, very low yields, negative geared, all of that kind of stuff. Um, typically, you know, good capital growth. This is starting out pretty diverse. Like they are like polar opposite strategies even to start. Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. And so that again, that was like that was a hunt, like it was a pure negative gearing strategy. There was no there was no value add. So it was like buy something that is blue chip as and just negative gear your brains out until, you know, and you get the tax benefits. And then there's little old me. And I'm like, well, why don't we just buy you something that makes money? And you know what's really interesting? We didn't end up working together. And that's fine. That's all good. But I was just like, I couldn't understand the, the logic between those, like that thought pattern because the goal was create, create a scenario where you don't have to work rather than create a scenario where you need to fund the result, if that makes sense. Like you're only going to get benefit if you claim tax on it, which by proxy means you have to work. Does that make sense? Well, I was seeing the mismatch out of the gate here. Like negative gearing only works. Like so, negative gearing is buying a business that is losing money yeah. to gain tax benefit, which we've covered on a, a previous episode. But I, I just look at that and go, well, if you are negative gearing, where is the negative? Where are you topping it up from? Like, how would that ever fit your strategy if you don't like what you're doing? Well, even if you do like what this is the point. Even if you do like what you're doing, if you actually have any aspiration to win back time or to have more freedom, or to actually like not feel like you're shackled to something. It just doesn't make sense to invest in something that you're that is going to cost you money. So that was the negative gearing thing. And then the other side, the other side of the other side of the uh, the position was like the development model. And and they, you know, is working seventy hour weeks has doesn't understand the mechanics of it, and was just like, well, I, I don't know. I guess I just like it's just really simple. Right? You just kind of throw all this money at it, and then ba ba, you get this result. I was like, wow, that's, and I think this is where a lot of people go wrong because they don't understand what different business models do, i.e. what investing, different investing strategies do, where they fit. Because again, all, each of those things works well if you know what order the ingredients go in. It's the same kind of thing as like if you're baking a cake, if you switch it around the wrong way and you turn the oven on and you just throw all the ingredients together and uh, or throw the flour in a pan, put that in the oven, take it out, add water. Like if you mix up all the ingredients in the wrong way, you're going to end up with a mess. You're not going to end up with a cake. Absolutely. And, and you know what? I, I really wish years ago someone had just explained it to me like this. Someone had just said this to me. Hey, Charlie, there's all these different strategies, right? And the way you need to think about them is like you're in business. Think of them like business models. Yeah. So – Really, really think of them and go, do you know what? This is like a service type business or this is like a product type business. And when you start to realize that, I feel like it was so much easier to digest. It was so much easier to understand. It's like, oh, right. So like negative gearing, that is like doing a hockey stick startup, right? This is like, I need, I'm going to lose money continually like Facebook or Amazon. And then one day there's going to be this big payoff, but I've got to somehow fund this gap to get across that. Yeah. Or there's other ones where it's like, well, you can buy a business that's already making money and that's more of a, like a positively geared strategy. Mm. Or you can buy a business that needs to be renovated. It's a fixer-upper. Yeah. And, you know, that's like flipping. And um, when someone explained that to me, I was like, the, the penny dropped in such a different way of, okay, it's like maybe I'm suited to different things. Like I wouldn't – I mean – I give full credit to those people that do the Silicon Valley startup and can consciously like get up in the morning losing like a million dollars a month. Like, wow. Good on you for being able to go through that. Not my style. Man, that takes so that takes so much um, internal confidence, doesn't it? <sighs> Just like, yeah, 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 cool. I'm losing a million dollars a month. That's all part of the plan. It's like, as a side note, I would love to know the life expectancy, how long these people live that have gone through that. Because like the stress, like constantly want, worrying about running out of cash, the runway and like, all right, we've got three months to get to here. Like, 
But this just goes to Sue White, negative gearing wouldn't work for me. Yeah. Right. I'm not saying it wouldn't, but it's like that's not who I am as a business owner. I like making money. I like profitable things. Um, I'm not the guy to go, oh, I'll just run a deficit into tax benefits and it'll all work out in yeah. that model, like the hockey stick. But again, it's like this, this kind of market, right, it, it kind of feels like it's not designed for business owners because they, people don't explain it in those terms. Yeah. Like they don't think of it that way and it's like I really, really, really wish someone explained it to me. You know, you really touched on a really interesting point there. This market feels like it's not designed for business owners, right? And it's not. No, and and I think that this is where there's a there's a fundamental mismatch. I think that there's it's like square peg round hole kind of scenario where you've got business owners who are made up a certain way, create revenue in a certain way, have stif- like have this all this kind of there's a differentiation, and then you've got and I'm going to say this colloquially without any hint of any negativity or anything like that, then you've got mum and dad investors who are like, you know, and if you kind of think about think about that, like maybe like our mum and dad, if you think about it in that context, where they maybe were going to have a job for life or maybe only one or two or three different jobs in their whole thing. The whole, the whole plan was like, okay, buy their own home, you know, have two kids and, you know, have a, don't really do it, have a lot, just have a great family life, buy maybe two investment properties, keep working until you're 60 because you're cool with that. And then, and then that's cool. And then retire and you maybe, it's, it's like, a, it's a 30 year plan. And when you've got this complete, you've got this complete mismatch is these two ideas where it's like, okay, so the way that we did it in the nineties or the eighties or the seventies is the way that we should do it now. And the thing that works for somebody else must work. It's just like those kind of ideas just don't, don't whack together, you know? And I I think that if you did try and take that perspective, like the whole industry is based around this idea of, you know, the, the, the mum and dad investor who the mum works, and I'm going to generalize here, but this is as someone in the industry, I see these kind of conversations happening all the time. It's like, you know, the, the husband works in a trade and the, the mum works in an administrative role and they've got two kids and they're just trying to get ahead and they're going to keep doing their, doing their professions for the next 30 years. It's like, sure, if you're going to have a job that is going to fund all of that kind of stuff, I mean, you can do all of that. But like, what if you, what if you actually want to have more liquidity and more freedom? And in fact, I'd even go as far as to say that if you actually flip that around and actually go spoke to those, those individuals, those classic mum and dad investors and said, do you actually realize that what you're signing up for is, is a 30-year liability as opposed to a five-year freedom strategy? I think that that, that, would, that would fundamentally change things. But at the moment, yeah, there's a complete mismatch between where business owners are at and the, the common the common uh, perspective of how you should go about investing in property. Absolutely. And a language and terminology mismatch. It's like business owners are speaking um, French and all the people in property are speaking uh, Italian or something like that. There's just this massive gap in terminology. And it's like, if someone would just go, oh, it's kind of like this, it it can really change things. I I really want to share a story here as well. Um, And I don't want to turn this into, I suppose we'll call it a a bashing of a certain strategy because again, it could work for some uh, people. But um, before I um, started my journey in property, Mm. I actually uh, did shares. And I look at this and I go, okay, I was like, I'll I'll explain the methodology and then I'll tell you a bit about what happened. Is that I... uh, have a knack for business. I enjoy business. I'm very fortunate that um, my partner Bianca is an accountant and was able to really help me understand how to read financials. So entrepreneurial jackpot, like out of the gate, I had someone in my house that could help me read a P&L, a balance sheet, cash flow report, like all these things. So when the idea of investing in shares came up, it seemed like a really good fit because mm. a lot of um, share investing is based on financials. So if I have this advantage where I can read a strong set of financials, like surely it makes sense that this is a good match for me. I've got a good understanding. I already like business. Like it seemed like this logical thing. These people are already speaking my language. So I got into it and um, what I didn't understand, and this is probably one of the things that um, I'm sure we'll talk about in another episode as well, but I didn't realize and what wasn't explained to me was just how active the strategy was that I was involved in. So I was um, trading to a degree and I looked at this and like I'm someone who's got a successful business, got a business to run, and then all of a sudden I'm watching charts daily or watching news and doing these things to uh, get gains and I'm looking at this and going – this isn't as profitable as my business. Like I actually make more money in business. And to go on top of that, I'd taken on an active strategy 
when what I was really looking for was a passive strategy. Now, the guy I learned this from was very successful and very good at what he, he did, but to the point is I don't think he understood that what I was looking for was something more passive and he had taken me on a path of something more active because that's what was working for him. Like he didn't necessarily see the gap either. So before you know it, I'm getting up early, watching the US markets, making trades, putting spreads on, buying options, uh, doing all these things that you know were new to me and then watching the news and then I was looking at it and I'm just going, this isn't right. Like this strategy and eventually, um, and that's why, I'm not saying the strategy doesn't work. It Mm. definitely can work for some people as you say. But this mismatch in understanding what I actually wanted or how this could become something that was much better for me, it was just such this huge mismatch and um, eventually I stopped doing it and that was the reason. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. You touched on a couple of things there. So trading, a lot of people think about trading in real estate. So flips and all of this kind of stuff. I think we'll do it. Let's do a whole episode just on business models within property so that people can understand from a different perspective. But like, you know, a lot of people, uh, in fact, I'm talking with a... Um, I'm talking with a with a uh, CEO founder of a travel company right now. Like I'm in an active dialogue with with her uh, around all of this kind of stuff, and she she wants she's talking like should I do flips? Should I do this? And so we're having I'm actually having these conversations right now, and it's kind of like if you're a business owner and you don't have much time, like you've got to really make sure that your energy is being used in the right way. So if you suddenly go look, you know what? I'm going to buy something. I'm going to buy something and then I'm going to I'm going to go and renovate it and I'm going to try and flip it. It's like, do you have a the mental bandwidth, b the skills, knowledge, uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff to actually make it work? Because the reality is, I would say 99.9999999% of the time, most businesses, aren't, most business owners aren't looking for another project. They're looking for more time, not less. You know, and unless you have a specific, in fact, I, like one of our private advisory clients, um, um came to me and they'd gone AWOL for two months. I hadn't heard from them in two months. They're supposed to be buying a property and I'm coaching them on how to do that and all of that stuff. They came back to me and they're like, we've been so overwhelmed for the last two months with work, blah, 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 blah. And they just like don't actually have the time to to commit to actually getting the project done. I'm like, there's a huge big gap there. But the other thing you mentioned is effective hourly rate, essentially. You said, hang on, I'm doing all of this, this trading. I'm, I'm doing this really active strategy, which is actually taking time and energy out of my day, my life, my business, my whatever. Is this time that I'm spending, is it as profitable as the time that I spend in my business? And that's going into your effective hourly rate. And I think that that's a really important thing to, um, to consider. Hugely. Um, but what it also lends into is actually team, right? Because if you don't have the right team, you had someone who was doing a really great job in, in, on their strategy in shares and had made a, great, made a great go of it. However, if your team is not fully aligned with where you're going and if your team doesn't share the, the same values, then you can be getting the wrong advice. You know, you could just have the wrong teacher. Again, this is one of those analogies that I wish was explained to me. I guess it, again, is like the people that are on your team in, let's call it property or investing, whatever word you want to use here, mm. you really need to think of them as the same as people you have on your team in business. Yeah. Right. You really need to consider them the same degree. And like, I just look at it and go, like, we all know if you're in business, you know the value of an A player. If you have ever hired someone that legit gets up in the morning and just crushes it for you, like the, sat- the satisfaction of working with them is just amazing. And, and I'm very fortunate that I have people like that in my business now. Like I get up and like, it's like high fives. It's like, I like that you're here. Mm. Now that experience I want, um, didn't necessarily realize early on for myself, but it's like, you really want to translate that experience here. And this is one of those relatable things that I don't think gets enough attention. Like you might just get a broker, get, get a buyer's advocate. And it's like, no, 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 no. They, they're not like it. It's not binary. There's not just like you just get one. Like there's a whole degree of how good they are, what strategies they know, what they have access to. Like there's a, a depth of understanding. What is their personal bias? Hugely. That is a huge one. You, that is a huge one. Because I know, I, know, I, know, I know there are mortgage brokers who are like top of their game, super renowned at what they do. They're like – they're like almost like celebrities in the in the field, 
However, I would never work with them because the, they have a personal bias towards um, a way of structuring finance and doing all of that kind of stuff that isn't uh, congruent with the values that I hold as a, as a business owner and also that we espouse for our clients. So like understanding that, like it's, as you say, it's not all binary. It's not all just like, go to bank, get money. Like it's just not that simple. Uh, and I think that you touched on a really good point there because a lot of, a lot of uh, a unique thing about business owners is and I can speak to this because I personally do it and will continue to do it. We invest a lot in mentors, guides, masterminds, um, courses, education, personal and professional development, like a lot, like disproportionately high compared to other people in the, in the, the, the you know, the global community. But sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate to, to, to real estate. Because like, as you said, you're like, I don't know, go get a broker and just go get a buyer's agent and just tick, tick, get house, I guess. Um, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> I just laughed pretty much. That, that was the thinking at the time. Anyway, continue. Yeah. And, it, and it's kind of like, it is, it is exactly the same thing. I mean, I've spent... Oh man, I've, I've literally spent multiple tens of thousands on, in, in just on one just on one relationship for like six months. Because I've wanted to, I've, I've understood that the value, like I might invest twenty, thirty thousand dollars in a relationship for six months because I know that 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 if because I'm investing in the right person who understands me and can provide the right value to me based on my situation and they're the right fit at the time for that, that I'm going to get a significant multiple return on that investment. Um, and I think that that's sorely missed in the whole in the whole uh, real estate sector because there's that because as we said earlier, there's that mismatch of like values and communication. I think. Yeah, and it kind of comes back to what we were saying before. If like if if your strategy, if you don't understand what your strategy is, right? Yeah. And we'll do, as we mentioned, we're going to do a whole episode on the different strategies. Mm. But depending on your strategy, just like depending on your business model, would depend on the team you need. Yep. So if you're not renovating, you probably don't need trades. And if you're not developing, you probably don't need a developer. But if you are, like they become an essential part of the team. But if you're borrowing money, there's a good chance you need a good broker. It's a very good chance. Yeah. And conversely as well, like the 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 idea that a lot of um, people have, I would say people broadly, so this applies to business owners and non-business owners, oh, but I'm smart. I can do it. I'll just do it myself. I don't need to go to a broker. I'll just go to a bank. I just got to, I can look up interest rates. I'm not a moron. What do you think I am? Look at me. I've built a business. I've got a team. I can successfully market. I know sales. I know, I can, what do you mean I can't just go, I'll go get my own freaking loan, right? And what can end up happening is you can end up stuffing it up in a really big way because you don't understand the fundamentals. And there's a speciality piece there as well, which I think that, um, that gets sorely missed. Vice versa, like anyone can buy a property. Like anyone listening to this, if you if you if you have the capacity to understand to what I'm saying to you right now, you have the capacity to go and buy a property. It's that simple. It's like it's actually not hard. Go and speak to a selling agent and say, "I have this much money. Find me a house. I want to buy a house." Where where it goes where it goes critically wrong is understanding. You know what are the mechanics in and around that, and is that going to be the right thing? I mean, look, I'll, I'll speak to a scenario when we were very first starting, like the very, so I've spoken about mine and Gabby's kind of very first purchase story um, um, before. Man, we honestly had no idea what we were doing. We got bad advice from the wrong team. So we got, uh, we got referred to a mortgage broker um, by somebody else who'd sort of vaguely blah, 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 blah. And we spoke to this mortgage broker and we said, look, we had no idea what we're doing, but here's the contract. It says, um, should we go should we go conditional? Should we sign the contract conditional to finance or unconditional to finance? Now, for people who don't understand what that means, that's basically saying if you say that I will purchase this property subject to making sure that I actually have the finance to complete the deal means that if I don't get the finance to complete the deal, I don't have to complete the deal. The other way of doing it is unconditional, which basically says I'm going to buy this deal whether I can get the finance or not. I, one of them is significantly scarier than the other. We had no idea what that meant. The broker that we spoke to at the time said, ah, you're on a full-time wage. Just go unconditional. You'll be right. And I'm like, that is like horrendously poor advice. Sage advice there. Oh, man. And like, so, so 
what actually the situation the situation was that we're like okay so we're buying that we're buying that deal whether we want to buy it or not or we risk losing every we risk losing all the money that was put into the into the deal into the deposit so getting the right team and make sure you're getting the right advice is is it can literally it can't just save you like tens and hundreds of thousands it can actually multiply your returns by by an equally asymmetrical amount oh i have to share a little story here okay um i, I read a book um that was game-changing for me called uh, Billionaire in Training by Brad Sugars. Fantastic book. Highly recommended. I think every business owner should read it. Um, and Brad talks into the idea of buying businesses, which, you know, if you're buying properties or shares, you are buying businesses. Yeah. But he's talking about, I'll, I'll call them like small businesses, is mostly the spiel here. So on the back of reading this book, I decide this is something I want to pursue. And one of his sage uh, wisdoms there is like, in your starting business, buy something you can understand. Just buy a simple business, get used to the mechanics um, of how to do this, and then you'll move into bigger, more complex deals. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that sounds very, very reasonable. And I, I went to a broker and I decided I was going to buy a yoga studio. Um, and the reason is I like yoga. Uh, two is I can understand the business. It's a very simple business. And then three, the business model is actually quite lucrative when you do the numbers and everything like that. It's very, very simple to understand. I um, go on this quest and this broker find, finds me three yoga studios and I, I begin this idea of doing due diligence. Like I begin this thing of like they give me the financials, they give me all these sheets and you ask all these questions and um, I'm going through this and there's this deal and like they want a hundred grand for this business, a hundred thousand dollars for this yoga studio. I'm like, well, if, if it's a hundred grand, like surely there's there's got to be value here. And I start digging through it and the business isn't making any money, right? And I'm looking at it and I'm like, you don't make any money. Why is it worth a hundred grand? Like if you got IP or assets, like you know, do you own the building? Like stock, like what, where do you come up with this like hundred grand number? And this, um, I'll say she was a lovely lady. I think she was a little bit delusional as you're probably leading to from here had basically made up this story about like what her sweat equity is worth, what she'd put in to get the business to here. And then the broker was trying to convince me that this was a good deal. It was in a great location. And I'm sitting here and I just can't scratch my head on why this is so. And I'm looking at how this is set up and I'm like, this is terrible advice. And I, I always think to that notion here of like, when you're in this game of like buying businesses, buying properties or buying anything, it is so easy to actually just purchase the thing. Like it would have been so easy for me to make that transaction, just like it's easy to buy a share or easy to buy a house. Like that isn't the hard part. But without, and luckily for my situation here, I was like, this just smells funny. So I, I didn't do it. Um, but I, I was like, someone's actually going to buy this. Just like someone's going to buy that house or apartment that probably isn't suited to them. And it's just, it's too easy to go wrong by just going the path yourself without advisement. It's too easy to make like huge, huge errors in this, in the mechanics. And it doesn't surprise me why so many people fail in these arenas when it's like you draw yourself into the illusion that you think you can do it yourself. Totally. Totally. And the, fa the failure rate, like the failure rate in real estate is, is look, there's two ways to look at it. So d depending on what your me metric of success is, real estate has a hundred percent success rate given enough time, right? You can given enough time. Like if time is it, given enough time, if you just, even if you bought really badly, if you just gave it long enough, it would, it would come good. Most people don't have an infinite amount of time. And typically, the metric isn't like, oh, did it perform well over 100 years? It's like, do I actually get what I want out of it? Most people don't care about properties. They care about the result. Um, and the the failure to achieve those kind of results is actually... Yeah, is actually pretty similar to to the business. The you know often quoted business failure rate. You know, ninety three point one percent of property investors never get to the financial goal that they wanted. You know, so they get stuck at two properties that are typically not what they they bought the wrong properties, wrong place, wrong time. They do all of that kind of stuff. So you've got about you. We'll just call it you know ninety. We'll call it ninety percent of property investors don't achieve the financial outcome that they desired. So therefore, we can consider that in this context failure, right? They didn't get there. Same thing goes for business owners. You know, there's a 90%, roughly a 90% failure rate in business. And it's a very interesting uh, story you just shared there because I actually just heard of two guys who I, who I loosely know who have no business experience, no uh, financial experience, no just like just kind of pretty loose characters, I, I, would, I, I would suggest. 
um, that are apparently buying a furniture store. And when one of my friends was was giving them some advice and was like, is the business, like how much are you paying for it? It was like X amount of dollars. Okay. Is it profitable? They're like, well, we, we're not really, we're not really, we don't really know. We're not really sure if it's profitable. And uh, and he was like, okay, well, wh- why are you buying it? Oh, because, you know, we, we, we've spoken to the guys and, you know, it's a good deal. Yeah, it's, it's a good deal. It's a good deal. Oh, and I'm just like, oh, oh it smells, it smells. I'm like, oh man, these poor, poor, like these guys are just like young, clueless dudes who are just literally about to go and make a horrific financial uh, mistake. And, and I would say that out of most of the people that I speak to who have invested in property, I would, I would, I, I would suggest that it's over 50% of people come to me, not because they want uh, better, not, not only because they want better results, but because they've stuffed it up in the past. Like they've gotten the bad advice or they've tried to do it themselves and they've really stuffed it up. And then and then my job is to go, well, how do we unstuff it? Like how do we how do we fix the mess so that you can continue Ooh. to have liquidity? Oh, just a quick statistic for you. So I, I run a media company. Um, we deal with a lot of podcasts, both new and established. Fifty percent of the clients we have, and I won't name them obviously, but it's undoing the bad podcast or bad media channel they've created and spent twelve months on. And I find that so fascinating that if they'd have taken on advisement or done different things, they could have had a far different result. But I'll ask you a bigger question here, Goose. One of the things I've seen more commonly is that um, business owners, once we get a bit of success, right, especially if we're younger and male, it seems to be, we make this assumption that, um, well, if we're good at one thing, we must be good at all things. Hubris. Eating some humble pie on that one. but um, <laughs> Same. But this is one of those things as well, and like I think it's far better to take on the student mindset here that serves it so much better from here. But I want I want to almost like jump into the next one here because I think we've covered this one really well, and I want to talk about risk management. Yep, I really want to cover this one because it's been close to my ideas. So in business, I'll give you the one from here is that you know making it relatable is like I don't think any business owner out there doesn't recognize the value of like cash reserves, insurance. Yep but I don't think it's been necessarily explained well in property terms. And we had a really interesting conversation last week about understanding some of these dynamics. And you mentioned some really great things that I think are valuable here. So I'd love if you could kind of um, re-articulate the points you made in the conversation with me last week about how to think about covering yourself with uh, property and like what is risk here or how can you defend best against it? Yeah, it's a it's awesome, and I actually had this conversation uh, last night as well with uh, one of our former clients, uh, current clients, right? Who, who's thinking about buying it, buying again? Uh, it's all about risk management, and there's a couple of ways to think about it. So, firstly, you've got to think about a couple. You've got to think about diversification, but then you've also got to think about um, what is your moat? Like, how are you how are you protecting yourself? So there's a few. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go a little tangential here to sort of paint a bit of a picture. So if you own one house and you have, and that gets tenanted and does all the right kind of stuff, you have a 100% single point sensitivity risk, right? So there's a huge, huge risk profile there. So a lot of people think that okay, in order to buy well, I need to spend more money on one property. You know, I need to get the most expensive property that I can afford. That's, and then I'll slowly save up and get another one. I, you know, you know. I, I don't know what kind of property that's going to be for you, but what I can say is that you'll have a hundred hundred percent single point sensitivity risk. So, for example, if that property becomes untenanted for a period of time, you're going to be left holding the bag financially for that. If that that property market um, suffers some economic shock, decline, or otherwise, you're going to be a hundred percent susceptible to that to that risk and to that outcome. Vice versa. Just, just as an outcome there, because I think we live in a, wor- a world where people think that doesn't happen, but like mining towns, oh, mine yeah. finishes, they decline heavily. Or um, I remember there was an estate not far to me, from me where they had a, a gas problem, like the yep. uh, soil was contaminated and uh, prices went through the floor. Like These things do happen. Yep. Yeah, totally. And like, here's an interesting thing as well. Like if you buy an apartment in an apartment block, let's say there's a hundred... I'm going to talk about talk about apartments in a different context in a second, but let's just say you buy, um, let's say you buy an off the plan apartment, and there's a hundred units 
uh, all owned by other people, right? In the complex, right? And if one of if one of those people, let's just say they have a divorce, it's a fire sale. They're just like, not nah, liquidate the asset, and they sell it for say thirty percent. Even if, if they've all just brand new been built, and let's say they're all worth six hundred thousand dollars, if they sell it for thirty percent less than what it's worth, every other single uh, apartment in that block will instantly be worth thirty percent less. They would yeah, they would de- they will devalue all of them on the basis of that. We'll go. Well, that's look. That's the best comparable sale that we've got, and that's the most realistic market measure. So you can you're very susceptible um, to sometimes experiencing that kind of stuff. Now, on a macro sense, property markets do continuously rise, etc. But it's not going to it's not going to change the fact that there are sometimes uh, unforeseen events that can impact this kind of stuff. So when you only have one property, you have you only have like you literally have all of your eggs in one basket. Now you can diversify by asset type. You can diversify by all of that kind of different stuff. But even within real estate, you can diversify. You can diversify by location. You can diversify by asset type within property as well. You can diversify by strategy. And these kind of things are going to give you a really, really strong risk management matrix. So for example, if you had a million dollars to spend and you went and bought one $1 million house uh, and property that typically that's probably going to go down faster than, than, than something that's cheaper anyway, because um, you, you know, demand always shrinks towards affordability uh, rather than up towards uh, luxury. But in any case, if you then split that into say you bought four $250,000 houses, you would have, you'd have quartered your risk profile and you could then spread that out across different States. So you've got that kind of thing, good, good diversification. But then you've also got, okay, well, what, what, is my, what is my moat? Okay, so if I've got one property that, uh, that, that goes untenanted, how much cash should I have on hand and how long would it take for me to fix that scenario? That's a really great question to be asking. Then also, what happens if things go wrong with the property that aren't covered by insurance? Okay, so there's another really great question to answer. Now, when you've got one property, just one, I would suggest, and this is not a hard and fast metric, but I would suggest that a reasonable amount of cash to have on hand to cover up any mistakes or, or um, you know, any unforeseen events is probably going to be about three months worth of rent. You know, because you can pretty much solve any problem in three months, even if you have to axe the rent, even if you have to like take on a shorter term tenant for less rent for a short period of time to get through whatever's going on in that unforeseen event, you're going to have the, the buffer to be able to do that and it's going to buy you a little bit of time. So I would suggest that 90 days of rent is a, is a good metric. Plus, you want to then think about what is the highest capital expense that I might have to, that I might have to uh, bear in, in a scenario. Typically, it's probably going to be a roof, right? So, so hot water service maybe, but that's going to be cheaper than a roof. So if you then said, well, a roof's probably, probably, depending on the size of the house, probably going to cost about 10 grand, right? So if you've got three months worth of rent plus 10 grand, you've got a moat. And I think that, that you can apply that back to business because business, any business that operates on a you know, hand-to-mouth basis, constantly spending everything that they earn, if something happens to them, if their Facebook ads stop working, for example, or, you know, anything like that, oh my God, like they're in a lot of trouble real fast. You know, their expenses, are, are, they're playing hand-to-mouth. Same kind of thing with property. Now, I tend to think that, that three months is a pretty good buffer, but everyone's got a slightly different risk profile. However, that doesn't scale. If you have 10 properties, you don't need to have three months worth of rent for all 10 properties. You don't need to have 10, you don't need to have $100,000 for 10 roofs and all of that kind of stuff because the likelihood of all 10 properties, 100% of a diversified by 10 properties, you know, all having an extreme economic, unless you bought in a cluster, unless you bought 10 properties all right next to each other in an estate or something like that, the likelihood of them all experiencing the same economic conditions is very, 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 very low, which is why this actually lends into one of the big strengths about multifamily, uh, multifamily investing. So apartment blocks, quadplexes, triplexes, stuff like that. If you if you own an apartment block, a whole apartment block of a hundred apartments, and one of them becomes vacant, you've only got a one percent vacancy rate. So you've got a lot more financial cushion, and it's understanding how to how to how to prepare for these risks is what is what's going to give you a lot of you know comfort. Now, if you've got a property that is actually paying, you know, creates surplus revenue, so as in it's cash flow positive, that 
that positivity, that, that surplus net operating profit can actually go into a fund for that property. So you can actually hold that in a trust account. You don't necessarily need to go, okay, if I'm going to go buy a property before I even start, I need to have three months worth of rent and all of this kind of stuff because you can kind of get stressed out and start to put up all these barriers that stop you taking action. But if you know, okay, well, all right, with a, high de- with a reasonable degree of certainty, I can expect these outcomes over the next few months and I'm going to have this much on hand. But by the end of a 12-month period, with the additional cash that's being generated from my property, that'll all go into a trust. Yep, cool. We'll cover all that kind of stuff and that'll cover all of the expenses that we need. I think that that is a really good kind of kind of buffer. Did that kind of make sense, Charlie? Did I ramble too much there? Does that make sense? No, I um, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed, it's very much what you said to me last time. And even then I enjoyed hearing it again, because I, again, really like the idea. For me, I, I understand business to a degree. Hmm. Property is my strength. So recognizing what's good or bad, or recognizing like benchmarks or what's risky or not risky is harder for me. It's something from there. And what I like here is that it's almost like creating a set of rules and your set of rules personally might be different. Yeah. But if you look at this and say, as a starting point is like, if I was to purchase a property that I would want to make sure I had three months of rent. So let's say it was a hundred dollars a week. I would look at having, let's say $1,200 in reserves. Mm -hmm. Obviously some properties rent for a lot more than that, but round numbers to make it easy. And then, you know, a one-off thing that might come up that might not be covered by insurance now, you said something in there, which I don't think we hit. Get insurance. Like you have insurance. Uh, make sure you uh, have a reputable uh, insurance company and understand what you're covered and not covered for. But then also just going, well, there's an extra 10 grand or even make it 15 if you want on a bigger property or something you know is more expensive so that if anything comes up, there's no loss of sleep. There's no moment where you're, pardon me, pulling out from other things or having to do that as well. So I think there's some huge ideas of going, using that as a grading uh, system or a benchmark for feeling comfortable really helped me in my understanding here, which I thought was awesome. Um, And then to recap is like the idea of like, if you, let's say, had 10 properties, the chances of them all being empty or something like that happening on a scale is just so, so low. So I think there's so much value and I've practically repeated or tried to reinforce here because I feel like it is so valuable and it's certainly something that's been important to me. But I want to drop one more in. I can see you. You might have a point to add in yourself. Yeah, I want. I want to. Yeah, you, you go because I want to add another point in there as well. One of the ones I think's um, confusing and has been incredibly confusing to me um, is that the idea of LVR mm. has been thrown in around risk as well. And like uh, to simplify it, you know, it's your loan to value ratio. So if you have a property, how much of you, do you own versus what the bank owns? What percentage, and this goes obviously scales across the portfolio. Yeah. But is there anything that layers into this? Like what if someone has a 50% LVR versus an 80? Are they really any better or worse off? It's a really great question. That is a really great question. And I'm going to I'm gonna talk into that. Um, I'm just going to quickly touch on another factor just in terms of the – uh, how to fund your risk, and then I really want to talk about the LVR component. So, the one thing that people forget is that um, properties can pay for themselves. So, for example, if your property needs a renovation in five years' time, if it produces net positive income and it also has grown in value, even marginally, you can refinance the cash out of the property and you can fund the repairs, the works, the renovations or whatever needs to be done. So there's a, there's a huge benefit there in making sure that if you've got properties which do produce a net positive income and all of that kind of stuff, you're going to be able to access the the capital which gets created within the asset to fund the any kind of works and that doesn't just have to go towards you know if the roof collapses which doesn't really happen but if you need to replace the roof or if you want to do a subdivision that can come from within the property it doesn't have to come externally so you don't always need to think how am i going to throw money at this thing sometimes you just need to change your thinking to go how could the how could the machine that I've, how could the business that I've bought pay for its own costs and that can be done that can be done strategically as well. And I think that that's something that a lot of people miss. So, but this lends into the um, loan to value ratio conversation because, you know, your available equity amount. So, so as you said there, you, your assets, your what you owe versus what you own, your assets versus your liabilities. You got you to remember that the property is a business. So, the same thinking applies. You know, what is my net operating profit? What is my, what do I owe versus what do I own? What are my assets versus liabilities? What does the balance sheet say? Now, 
you touched on a really interesting thing there. Like some people might have a 50% LVR. Some people might have a 90% LVR. Hell, you can even get 105% LVR if you want, which just for those playing at home means that in certain scenarios, you can borrow 5% more than the property is worth. That is 105% loan to value. So it's you're actually getting 5% more than the property is worth, which I think is, you know, probably a little... A little high on my risk profile, but for some people, they're really into it. So you're going to ask yourself a couple of things. What is my risk profile? Now, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and business owners are a really funny breed because they're both very risk averse, um, but also very high risk profile. And what I mean by that is they're prepared to take a lot of risks, but they also don't very scared of stuffing things up at the same time. So there's kind of this really interesting balance between. I'm prepared to tear down walls, but hang on a second. I, I need what I need to understand things as well. That's over. I have to cut in. My wife laughed. Oh, Bianca, my partner, laughed at me very hard. She's like, right. She goes, you have no problem hiring people overseas. Um, you create businesses where you can't touch anything, right? There's like it's on the internet. And you think it's risky buying some things in certain places, like going in, into a physical location. She goes, you know, that's messed up, right? <laughs> and I go, but it's just, it's my normal. It's my, it feels normal for me because I've got experience there. Mm. Just like I'm sure you go look at a property and be like, well, it's another property. We do this every day. Yeah. It, I do it, find that so interesting in the bias column of comfortability and like we are perceivably willing to take on risk in areas that we have experience in or understand at such a higher level yeah, than we do over here. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things that one of the things when it comes down to um, what you owe versus what you own, what is available to you. So if if you have an eighty percent, let's just say your your risk bias is like I'm comfortable with having eighty percent debt on twenty percent equity within an asset, which is fine, which is totally fine. Um, now you got to think of two things. What happens if the property market tanks? Do I believe that it will tank more than twenty percent, and would that then put my property into negative equity? That's how that's how I think about the profiling of an LVR. Because what you don't ever really want is a situation where you what your ass the asset you hold is worth less than what you what you paid for it, right? And vice. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. You don't want to find yourself in a position where you have nothing left in the property that you own. <laughs> no one wants to lose money, but you definitely don't want to go into a negative equity position. That is bad news for any for anyone. It means even if you sold it, you'd be selling it at a at a complete you'd actually have to pay money to sell it, which is not good. Um, but you've got to ask yourself, do I believe that the property market is gonna gonna drop by 20%? Historically it doesn't really happen, right? So that's one bellwether in your LVR thinking. Okay, do I believe that if everything went bad, my my the bit that I own would go to zero or not? That's one thing. Then the other thing to think about is efficiency. So, you know, the the idea of any business is to turn assets into profits. That's the function of any business. Turn assets into cash. That's it, really, at the end of the day. And the same thing goes for real estate because real estate is a business. So if you have a property where you're like, all right, I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to keep putting money at it and I've got, I've got like six, 70, I've got 50% equity, 80% equity. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel really safe. That's great. But I would challenge you to say that your uh, assets are not working efficiently and you're not efficiently turning your assets into cash. Now, you may produce more cash flow out of that one asset because you have less loan amount to pay. So that's one way to look at it. However, if you diversified out of that single property, you would not only spread your risk, but you would increase your opportunity of return. And therefore, you would actually be creating better efficiency, which I think, I think every business owner needs to consider. Like if I have a dollar, what is, what, how can I make this the most efficient? Can I turn this into $2, $5 or $10? Now, I did an interesting exercise a couple of days ago um, where... I created a model and said, well, if I started with $60,000 only and didn't contribute anything else to a property portfolio and took a 10-year time scale and only looked at cash flow and average rates of growth. So I used like a 5% growth rate, so nothing ex you know, extreme. And I went, what could, I, what could that $60,000 turn into? Now, I used a 90% loan-to-value ratio in this calculation and I did that deliberately, but I also used a principal and interest loan, which meant that the repayments would be higher. 
And then I also said, well, if the repayments are really high and my leverage is really high, what is the fastest that I can go, but at the same time pay down my debt and see where I get to at the end? That was kind of the premise. Now, on that basis, I worked out that, um, you know, all things being equal and borrowing being equal and all of that kind of stuff, you can turn $60,000 into $1.7 million over a 10-year time scale, which is a, uh, a 30x return or something to that effect on your, on your investment. However, that requires you to think about how can I, how, what is the greatest level of efficiency I can get out of the money. Does that make sense? Well, this kind of comes back to what we were talking about at the start, which is like strategy. If you're the type of person where you've only got 60 grand in this case and that and that's it, well, really you have to find something that can work for you. And if you're not willing to take on those risks or understand the risks of you, you're going to need 90% LVR or you're going to need to play that mm. game, then it becomes different. And I, I'm really interesting. I want to I ask you a question on top of this and I want you to say not only your answer but why because I think this is powerful. If I'm someone, and let's pretend I've got, I'm going to use round numbers. I've got a million dollars, right? If I've got that million dollars and I go and buy one house and I own it outright, okay, and I've got one tenant, right? I understand the diversity of that. How does that span versus the idea of taking that million dollars and turning it into potentially four properties with debt? So not owning them outright, but having four properties at, let's say, 50% LVRs because you would probably have $2 million in property then. Mm. and a lot more diversification, but you're also taking on the risk of debt. Yeah. So there's a couple of parts to that. There's financial return versus risk profiling. Now, I'm I'm in no position to dictate to people what their risk profile should be. However, what I can speak to is the situation that you just said. Let's just say you had a million dollars and you bought one property and let's just for simple maths say that it increased by 10%. Okay, you'd you'd make a hundred thousand dollars, and we'll just take a twelve month time scale just for simplicity. Um, you'd you'd incre- that increase by ten percent. Okay, great. So that gives me a hundred thousand uh, dollars paper profit in capital gain. We'll say now if you split that and bought two properties that are worth five hundred thousand dollars, and they also both equally went up by ten percent. Sorry, if you split that to five hundred thousand dollars and bought two one million dollar properties at fifty percent LVR, and they both went up by ten percent as well because they're both million dollar properties. So let's just assume they're the same property repeated. Then you would have made two times ten percent on one million. Okay, so you're actually magnifying your gains. It's a benefit of leverage. So if you conversely then went to a twenty five percent LVR and bought four one million dollar properties using two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and they all went up by ten percent, you would have four times ten percent gains. You would actually have four hundred thousand dollars return versus a one hundred thousand dollar return if you just bought one. Now, the difference is the cash flow amount is going to be different because if you own one property outright and you don't own owe anything to the bank, your operating costs are going to be lower because the largest operating cost typically in any property is the loan repayments. So you would take more cash out of the deal straight away. And I can speak to an example. I helped someone um, cash buy a uh, property that was worth about $700,000, cash buy, and the yield on that was only about 4.5%, um, but it's you know producing sort of like 25-ish cash flow, which is great, which is awesome. However, um, you're not you're not capitalizing your gain across those assets and you're not diversifying the risk. Now, the other thing to anyway, does that does that kind of does that kind of explain it? It does and it you just highlighted a few points within that is like this is where I think the whole conversation of risk and I suppose how to f it up in the title of this is that even in this I can see you can make a huge mistake by thinking just buy one and mm-hmm. pay it off and then get the next one where you've you've lost opportunity cost. And then you've also taken on risk you might not be aware of Mm. in that you have one tenant. Just like as a business, you have one client. I would never do that. Um, But in property, it's somehow that seems conventional. Like that seems like a good idea. I don't know why. It just did for me at least. But then conversely is if you leverage out too far and let's say put yourself into a position where you got into that 90 plus percent arena, Mm. you might on a good market do really well through gains but you also open up the risk of like if any fall or change in environment happens, you also magnify the losses you could take. So balancing that and where you're comfortable is a huge thing, but then there's this whole other arena of cash flow. Totally. I was about to say cash flow, cash flow is the almost the cure-all, right? Totally. 
so you know one of my favorite one of my favorite things about real estate is that most of my favorite entrepreneurs are also in real estate or have been in real estate you know people like Keith Cunningham and Roland Frazier and Gary Keller and like all these guys I'm like wow they're just phenomenal business people and they've, they've got roots or at least even whole businesses in real estate one of my favorite stories is about Keith Cunningham about and about how he got all jacked up in the 80s and went and just went holes bolus into into real estate made loads of cash made heaps of money and I think you know reportedly 100 million dollar plus net worth um, leverage to the hilt wrong assets wrong strategy so he was buying land and assets which were which had sensitivity risk to com- so he was heavily invested in commercial and heavily invested in land okay and then what happened in the 80s was the stock market crashed and all of this kind of stuff there was a huge economic downturn commercial properties ceased to be functional because businesses started closing down tenants vacancy rates went up and he was too overexposed in that field and then the other assets that he owned, the land components didn't produce any cash and they also went down in value. So all of a sudden, he didn't, didn't have the cash, didn't have the cash flow to be able to hold those assets. And so yeah, he lost it all. He lost it all. And like, it's a great, the reason I like the story is not because he lost it all, but because he went through this whole transformational journey and you know, built his way back up in business. I think it's a fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic story. My point being, that if you can, let's just say you buy a property and it goes down by 10%, man, that'd suck. But yeah, yeah it'd suck, right? Man, I just bought a property that's gone down by 10%. Worth noting here, side note, side note, just a little side note, throughout this whole coronavirus uh, pandemic, do you know how much the property market has holistically declined? And this isn't on a, on a, on a this is largely due to Sydney and Melbourne. Look, I, I'm half tuned into this, but I know it's minor, maybe a percent, it's, 2%. It's 2.5%. Okay, so in the largest economic situation that we've had, look, hey, no one knows what the future is going to hold, cool, fine, but it's gone down by 2.5%. Let's just say your property goes down by 10%. That'd really be, that'd suck. That would not be what you want. However, if it produces surplus cash flow, Right? If it produces more income than it uses, firstly, it's going to be paying down its own debts. It's going to start making up those losses itself. It's like a worker that goes to work for you. But also, you can just hold it. You can be like, well, it's not costing me anything. It kind of sucks a little bit that my cash isn't working very efficiently, but I'm not, I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be like worrying about how I'm going to make up that loss You because know, the property will take care of itself. Isn't that interesting? I, lo- I love how this feeds back into this bigger idea of this podcast episode though, mm. because I think this kind of uh, sums it up is that one of the best things you can do to not F it up is make sure you're set up into a way where you aren't forced to sell yeah. in a down environment to make sure that your business or your property business in this case is still able to produce cash or you can take hits from uh, multiple angles and still be fine just like you would in business. Yep. And I would also argue that if you're not doing this in business, you probably should put buffers and things in place and risks and insurances so you don't end up in a similar thing there. But that's such a great wraparound, Goose, into so many things from there. Is there anything else you want to uh, inherently put in towards how, how you can F it up? We sort of touched on this a little bit. I want to be very I'm mindful of time. I'm mindful of the length of the episode. And so I'm just going to say this quickly and we can expand on this in maybe in another episode. Two of, the, two of the biggest mistakes that I think business owners can make when thinking about getting into property is firstly, thinking about buying their dream home first. Maybe they've had some success in business and like, yeah, I'm a baller. I'm making all this cash. Maybe I've sold my business. Maybe like any of that kind of stuff. And they're like, great. Right. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to go buy the penthouse. I'm going to go buy the boon, you know, the boon, the, the, that, that vision that's been on the vision board with the ocean views and all of that kind of stuff. Now, the reason that that's a mistake is because it's a non-income producing asset. And the likelihood is you're going to throw your cash into that and you're not going to be able to get the cash back out very easily because in order to pull the cash back out, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to increase your cash flow position. So what you can actually find is putting yourself in a position where in order to actually 
make that make any financial sense out of it. You actually end up having to work harder and you actually have to put yourself in a position where you need to try and grow your business more because you've done the wrong thing in the wrong order. And I think that's a big mistake that people can make. And the other thing I would suggest with that and next to it, so whether it's dream home vibes or whether it's, uh, whether it's an investment vibe, it's proximity bias because so many business owners would be like, they, if it's particularly if they've found some degree of success, they will associate their success with their environment and they'll associate their environment, environment with what's around them. So they're more likely to go, well, life's good here. Life's good here. Like in my bubble and in my psychological and emotional world, I'm here. I'm in Bondi, right? Bondi is great. Bondi is great and I love Bondi. But what can happen is as I find successes in areas of my life that are non-related to the location, I can psychologically associate those with the location and that can actually enforce a proximity bias. We're like, well, I'll just buy, yeah, I'll buy an investment property. I'll just buy something nearby partly because you know the area and you're like, but it's right near that cafe. I see heaps of people going there. Man, did you see how quickly that property sold last week? And you can do all of this kind of stuff and it can really, it can really stuff people up because what can happen is you're, 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 emotion, you're making an emotional decision, not a financial one. The, the, the statistical probability of you finding the, being in the right location at the right time to get the maximum efficiency out of your money and also just happening to find the right property in that right location at that time and that being happening to be within 20 to 50 kilometers of your house is so, it is so minuscule. It is, it is, it is, the, it is the emotional equivalent of launching one Facebook ad with one copy, one creative, one headline and putting, just setting the daily budget to like $100,000 and going, well, that's it. I'm running Facebook ads now. I'm rich and just walking away and hoping that that one ad is targeted correctly and it all works. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. I still find this so interesting that whenever we, um, if you say something in property and then relate it to business, Suddenly it's like, oh, I would never do that. Yeah. But it's funny that it seems so perceivably safe when you put it in property terms. Like, what if I just buy down the street? That's perceivably safe. Tyler, how many people, Charlie, how many people do you know, business owners, do you know who have tried to do Facebook ads? I'll just use that as an example. And they're just like, Facebook ads don't work. Facebook ads do not work. I spent like, I spent like 30 grand and I didn't make any money. How many times have you heard stories like that? Every every month. And it's not just in this arena. It's like almost the same thing of like, can you imagine hiring someone and only doing one job interview? Or like, can you imagine, there's so many examples of this. Like there's just so many things that require diligence, risk analysis, trying different things, hiring multiple people to get it right. It's just so, so, so diverse. There's so many things that you never get right on the first try. Very unlikely anyway. Yeah, unless you get the right advice, right? Unless you go, actually, I want to run Facebook ads now. Well, I actually don't know what that means. Who can I speak to? Can I invest in a, a guide of some to type? You know, and how totally. do I do that? And 90% of the time, that's going to cost you a significant chunk of money because those guides are going to be like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, can, I can stop you spending 30 grand on Facebook ads and making $0. And in fact, I can help you spend 10 grand on Facebook ads and, and make you 100 grand that's the value proposition. And I think that that's the same psychological barrier that people need to overcome in this industry as well. So, I absolutely agree on that one. Awesome, man. Sweet. Well, I think it's been a great episode. I think we've covered a lot. We've talked a lot about risk management and uh, diversification and stuff like that. So I think let's, mate, let's wrap this up one up. But let's, I reckon on the next one, I, I've got some, we've got some ideas for the next episode. I'm really excited to be getting into it to frame up these two similar yet different worlds and help them collide in a meaningful way. Me also, Goose. I'm having a lot of fun making this series. Likewise. Cool, mate. Well, to that degree, if you want to uh, find out more about how to access this or other resources, just check the show notes. Just head to theinvestorlab.com.au. There's loads of really good stuff there, um, other episodes to check out. So enjoy it. And if you've listened this far, thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. <laughs>